says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And Father, we humble ourselves before you right now and Lord, you know what we need and are asking as we open the word of God and pray that we would be prepared and that we'd have a sensitive heart and soul and mind and spirit that you can speak to us what you would want to say to us from this portion of your Holy Scripture. We thank you that your word's alive, Lord, and that you promised it would be powerful. So let it be that today. May it have a living, powerful effect in each of our lives that we might hear what you're saying to us and receive every intent behind why you inspired and gave us this portion of Scripture. Speak to us now in a personal way by your Spirit's ministry. And we ask believing such in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I know you probably haven't, but have you ever perhaps said something before like, I'm not sure what is the wisest thing to do in this particular situation? I'm not sure what is the wisest thing to do in this particular situation or matter. Well, this text this morning gives to us, thankfully, some good instruction regarding how to use proper wisdom, more than that, God's wisdom to walk in God's will. James opens this next section here by sort of asking a question. If you look in verse 13, he simply says, who is wise and understanding among you so we ask kind of this searching question and the purpose of the question is really meant for evaluation of self he's asking is anyone among you among the family of god using wisdom and do you have a proper grasp mentally he's saying of what is right and wrong what is appropriate or inappropriate what is correct or what is incorrect and he's sort of at this point Asking, are there really those who understand and comprehend what God desires? Those who really grasp what matters to God and what God wants. We might say, how is it possible to know if someone is a, a, a wise person, has good understanding in their life? James is kind of looking to identify, if you would, the life of an individual that's characterized by wisdom. The life of an individual that's characterized by being a very understanding person. And I think in relation to that, it would help in some ways to kind of almost define what that actually infers. What does wisdom really mean and what does it not mean? And what does it really mean to have understanding? Because quite honestly, it's important to remember wisdom is not the same thing as intelligence, Uh, By that I mean wisdom is not the same thing of having a great intellectual capacity and having a lot of facts in your mind, well-studied, well-educated. Certainly intelligent people 
who have lots of information and facts that they know can be wise as well. But you know as well as I do that we have met individuals and sometimes people can be very smart and know a lot of facts and yet they live in a very foolish way. They exercise no common sense and there's no sense of really a wise or an understanding way about how they conduct their affairs and how they live their life. A person can be very, very educated and yet show no understanding how to live well. And that's just very important to realize. Wisdom, if you're a definition person, is the ability to act and decide rightly when handling life situations. It's the ability to act and decide rightly when handling life situations. We might say it's the proper common sense usage of what things we have learned, whether through education or just life experiences we learn through all kinds of ways, but it's the proper common sense usage of how to live rightly with the knowledge you have as you face circumstances, deal with matters, and walk through situations. The dictionary defines wisdom in this way, understanding what is true, right, and lasting, marked by great understanding of people and situations, unusual discernment in dealing with such, having a deep understanding and keen discernment and a capacity for sound judgment. And usually when a person is wise, they then have what James also refers to here as an understanding spirit. When someone is wise, it usually leads to greater understanding. And understanding is the ability to kind of comprehend mentally what's right and wrong, what's appropriate and inappropriate. Uh, again, when we speak uh, in the sense we say, to somebody, do you understand what I'm saying? The idea is we're trying to say, do you get it? Do you grasp what I'm trying to say here? And you might say someone who is an understanding person is somebody who they get it when it comes to dealing with matters. They understand what does matter and what doesn't matter. And they're able to kind of grasp and comprehend with keen insight. And therefore, they handle situations that arise in their life in a way that indicates they get it. Rather than someone who you're thinking, you are one of the smartest people I know and you don't get it. You don't get people. You don't get relationships. You don't get finances. You don't get life. You don't get what matters. And, and the idea here is someone who does get it. They grasp it. And they have a keen understanding in regards to that. So again, how is it possible to know, James is saying, and to identify a person, to identify someone who is wise and who has good understanding? Well, he asks that question, and then he takes the liberty to answer his own question. Verse 13, who's wise and understanding among you? He answers it. Let him show it by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So James answers his question by saying wisdom will be something that is seen in how people live. Wisdom will have evidence to it. Wisdom is something we can see by looking at how somebody operates, how they function and handle their affairs. James says, how can we tell if someone has wisdom? Let him show, that is the wise person, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of his wisdom. That word show literally is a term that means to give evidence or proof that something's true. So what James is saying is the wise person will be revealed simply by the way they live. That's how you can tell if someone's wise or not. 
by the way they live their life. Their lifestyle will be one of the clearest proofs of their wisdom. It will be one of the most obvious demonstrations that is a wise person. When someone is wise and understanding, there will be observable evidence by how they operate. What's the foremost proof? He says there in verse 13, look at the text. He says, they'll show it, prove it, give evidence by good conduct. By good conduct. Now, our conduct is a reference to how we handle ourselves in situations. So, good conduct would mean we handle ourselves in a good way, in a right way, in a healthy way, in a godly way. So, good conduct is basically a reference to a healthy manner of living. He's saying we can recognize the wise person by realizing they conduct themselves in a really good way. They're one of those kind of people who say, boy, he conducts himself really good in those kind of situations. Or when those matters arise, she really has a healthy way of approaching that and the way they manage their affairs. And again, this is the idea. We look at someone's management of their personal affairs and their public affairs and how they live day to day. We see how they interact with people. We see how they handle situations, how they make and process their decisions. We, we might look at their life and see how they do marriage. How do they do parent raising? What kind of children have they raised? And how do they, in a sense, process the handling of their finances? You know, how do they handle their responsibilities? What do they prioritize? What do they, uh, you know, perhaps pursue? What do they avoid? And, 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 and how do they handle the things that are their processes of making decisions? And we look at the life and we begin to realize hmm, there, there's wisdom there. That person seems to have a sense of understanding. And we might say the person who is wise, you could put it this way, they just live well. They live a balanced life. They have a life that's marked with stability. They live a safe life. They live a solid life. And people say, now, that's a good model there. That's a good example of an individual or a family or so forth. And the wise person also we see here doesn't just live well and have good conduct, but he also says the wise person works will be done in an attitude, verse 13, of meekness. An attitude of meekness, a, a humility. Meekness is power that is brought under control. The best example of meekness in some ways is like a broken horse or a, a thoroughbred that's been trained that was once wild. That horse still has all of its power and all of its authority, but it's just been broken and its power has been brought under control. So meekness is people that, oh, meekness, it makes you think of someone that's weak or, you know, if, effeminate in some way. No, that's not the idea. Meekness is someone who possesses great authority, great power, but yet it's under control. It's channeled because they have a humility and not an arrogancy, so it's exercised in a meek way. There's a meekness about them. And the greatest example of this certainly is Jesus. Jesus is the greatest demonstration of meekness. In fact, one of the autobiographical statements Jesus made about himself is he said, take my yoke upon you, learn of me. And he said, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Now, would you say Jesus was weak? I think he possessed all the power and the authority of heavens and earth. He had incredible power, incredible authority, but yet Jesus kept his authority under control and he used his authority in a wise way. 
He used his power in ways that had great understanding. So meekness in our attitudes, which is a mark of wisdom, James says, and in our conduct, that attitude of meekness is possessing great strength, but still using gentleness. The idea there is is a mild-mannered individual who can be humble in their interactions with others. They don't need to throw their weight around. They don't need to you know, push for what they want. They're not a controlling person. They're not a manipulative person or someone who's domineering. They can trust God rather than having to push issues to come to pass in their way or even in their timing. And and certainly as Christians, as we follow a Savior, Jesus Christ, who was meek in his temperament, the attributes of Christ, one of them being meekness, should be a thing that is continuously developing in our lives as Christians. There should be a greater meekness coming about in our spirit. Again, the meek attitude of a wise person will direct them to conduct themselves in a way where they're not striving. They're not pushing to try and make something come to pass or force themselves to, in a way that's going to you know, act and operate in a manner that's going to get their way what they want in a situation. Instead, the meek person trusts God to ultimately just work things out in his way, in his time, and to shut what doors he wants to shut and open what doors he wants to open. And they just live submitted to God because they trust in the overarching authority of God and that God will do what God's going to do. And they don't have to strive to make it happen or control it or force it to come to pass in their way or their time. Again, Psalm 37 says, the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Notice, the meek shall inherit, the Bible says. It doesn't say conquer, dominate, go get for themselves. The spirit of the meek inherits things because the spirit of the meek trusts the Lord to work and just lets God give and dispose what he wants to them in his way and his time. So he says, this is one of the ways we can tell the wise person it'll be shown by a life of good conduct with a meekness in their spirit. Then he says, verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom, the Bible says, does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So James, before he talks about God's wisdom in the last two verses, first he identifies what God's wisdom does not look like. And this is very helpful. He identifies what God's wisdom does not look like. He's saying God's wisdom is not going to cause a person to be motivated by certain kind of wrong attitudes and conditions going on inside of their heart. And he addresses what those things are. And he kind of was warning me and warning you to check if we possess these negative attitudes, these unhealthy heart conditions in any way in our life to realize if so, that's not God's wisdom at work within us. It's something else that's unhealthy. And the first thing he says is, if there is the presence within of bitter envy. Now, bitter envy, interesting. The idea here is severe jealousy of who another person is or what they have or what they've accomplished. And let me just say, there is a distinction between jealousy and envy. Uh, Jealousy is a term that speaks of wanting what someone has. Envy is a stronger term which means being angry at them because they have it. 
If I'm jealous of you, I'm jealous. I am jealous because I don't have what you have. Man, I wish I had what you had. If I'm envious, I am really ticked off that you have it and I don't. And I'm mad that you have it and I don't. I'm mad that you have that possession and I don't. I'm mad that you have that house and I don't. It makes me mad that you drive that kind of car. It makes me mad that you're married and I'm not. Let me remind you, it's always much easier to be single and wish uh, you were married than to be married and wish you were single. So be careful when you're envious of those who are married if you're single. And we can actually become angry. We're angry that someone else has a position. So there's almost a, there's a bitterness in us, a bitter envy. This is just called envy. It says bitter envy. The, the Greek means literally a, a souring deep in the spirit where there's a, almost a resentment that somebody else has this position and I don't have it. So I've become bitter and envious and I'm, I'm actually stirred with anger within. I'm actually agitated that they're holding this position or role and I don't have it and I can't have it. So I'm upset. I'm actually angry that I don't have it. And so it begins to drive and motivate unhealthy things, foolish behavior and decisions and attitudes. And again, we could be envious of possessions or position, as I said, or just even privileges that somebody gets to do something that we don't get to do in some way. And I think it's good on occasion to evaluate, maybe even in your own life recently, is it possible that maybe the reason you conducted yourself the way you did recently is because there was an attitude perhaps of a little bit of envy or bitterness within your spirit. And that's what prompted you to behave in the way that you did. And sometimes that can be what's driving us and what the Bible wants us to hear and what God wants us to know, whether we realize it or not, or even are willing to admit it, if and when we're motivated to do something because of envy or bitterness, that is not God leading us. Because God won't work in that way. God does not direct in that way because Galatians 5 lists envy as one of the works of the flesh, of the sin nature. So if that's what's driving us, it's not God's wisdom that's leading us. He also warns to check if we ever have self-seeking, he says, verse 14 there, going on within our hearts. And self-seeking means exactly what it says. It's seeking to obtain what's best for myself. And when selfish ambition and self-seeking is going on, I'm being directed by a desire to look to get what I want in a situation. I'm being led by my own self-interests. What I'm driving after, what I want for myself, I, I want to get my way. And so if my thoughts and my actions and conduct are being led or directed by kind of wanting to just get my way in something or obtain my ultimate desire or goal or agenda that always leads to us kind of behaving in a way where we pursue what we want, listen, and we behave how we feel without giving any regard to the effect it's going to have on other people. That's what self-seeking does. And that's not God's wisdom. God's wisdom does not behave in a way where you selfishly seek after what you want with no regard for the effect it's going to have upon others. That's not a wisdom that descends from God. And this can be manifested, again, self-seeking in our relationships with one another. Sometimes people even use a person to get what they want, ultimately. We can behave this way in our marriage relationships. Self-seeking is what drives, at times, people to enter into an adulterous relationship or to pursue a divorce because they just want what they want. 
Children and young people can be self-seeking at times in their attitudes relating to their parent or their siblings. You know, we can get pushy and assertive when we just want to get something that we want to get or we want to have our way in some situation or even in our vocation. We can just discard or disregard our other co-workers, maybe violate our ethical principles because we are selfishly driven to get something. Quite frankly, it even happens in the church at times where people maybe don't agree with the decision that was made or they don't like the way something's going or maybe they know the way they want something to go and so self-seeking begins to drive the heart of an individual and can make a person self-seeking become very pushy people become very you know just cruel and insensitive they become rebellious and unsubmissive and and they're just seeking to push after what they want and again as with envy and bitter envy when a person is being led by a self-seeking spirit within them that's not God because God doesn't operate like that to any way the Bible again tells us in Galatians 5 part of the list of the works of the flesh makes it in there selfish ambitions that's the flesh God says that's somebody just acting in their sinful flesh when they're driven in a self-seeking attitude. We're not being led by anything other than our sinful nature because the Bible repeatedly tells us to do what with ourself? Deny ourself. To, to crucify our flesh and to consider others. So it's not the Lord directing us, the Bible says, when this is going on. And selfish ambition, let me just say, sometimes self-seeking and selfish ambition is almost a little harder to recognize in ourselves because sometimes we can just become so laser focused with a strong desire about something that we want or we want to do that we don't even realize how selfish we become in seeking after that. And we're almost blinded to our own self-seeking behavior because we are just so driven to get something that we're consumed with in some way. So James says if these things bitter envy or self-seeking in your hearts are what is moving and directing your conduct and decisions he says verse 14 don't boast and lie against the truth what he's trying to say there is these things they don't line up with the truth of God's word they contradict the truths of God's word so it's almost as if he's trying to caution the hyper spiritual person the super spiritual attitude and he's saying listen if you're being motivated in your conduct and your decisions by these things that God is not prompting, then don't be hyper-spiritual and lie against the truth and say, well, God's leading me to. No, he's not. You're directing yourself, but God's not leading you because God doesn't lead in those ways. Do you understand what I'm saying? God doesn't lead in contradiction to the principles of his word. And we have to be careful because sometimes as Christians, we can be so driven and all this unhealthy stuff's going on in our heart and we attach God's name to stuff. And James very practically says, come on, don't lie against the truth. Don't do that. Don't drag God's name into something when God's spirit is not the one that's directing something. And he says, here is the truth. Going on verse 15. He says, this wisdom, that kind of wisdom, it doesn't descend from above but is earthly, sensual, and demonic, he says. Please take note. There is a kind of wisdom. We might say there is a kind of reasoning. There's a way of thinking about things and handling affairs that the Bible tells us does not come from God. 
He says it doesn't descend from above. It doesn't descend from God. So there are patterns of thinking that exist. There are ways of processing decisions and handling affairs that is just ungodly wisdom. It's not from God himself. And sometimes this kind of stuff, which exists very prominently in the world, it even can creep into the church. And we can find ourselves processing decisions and reasoning and patterns in ways that are not the way that God would want us to. And so I think James is saying we have to be careful. We have to use discernment. So this passage is very helpful in that sense because the Bible says the origin and source of wrong patterns of thinking, they, he says, are actually, truth be told, earthly in their origin. Sometimes it's sensual at the basis and other times, he says, the source of it is flat out demonic. It's flat out demonic. Earthly means of this world. Again, it's taking the pattern of the world and embracing that as a way of processing decisions. That's a worldly pattern of thinking. Sometimes it's a sensual motivation. The idea there is of the, the senses, the lower nature. That is, I'm being directed to maybe process a decision or think about something in a way. And what's leading me is just the desires of my humanity. I just have a very strong desire or maybe a really strong conviction about something. And he's saying, look, that's you're, you're reasoning in that way, but the origin of that, it's just sensual. It's just your humanity prompting you to process it that way. And he says, there are times as well when the origin of our way of thinking is influenced by the devilish activity of demonic spirits. Interesting, the Bible tells us in 1 John that there are three enemies we need to be careful of. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And here the Holy Spirit says one of the ways we have to be careful of the world, the flesh, and the devil is sometimes they can cause us to make mistakes in our reasoning capacities, in the way that we process things, our patterns of thinking and our ways of reasoning about matters sometimes are just wrong. And we're going about it in an incorrect way the way we're handling it or the way we're viewing it or our thought process. Sometimes it's just earthly. We're just following a pattern that we've learned from the world that we live in. It's just worldly. It's of a fallen world system and a world system that doesn't care about God. It doesn't care about what's spiritual or eternal or pleasing to God. It doesn't factor that in. So it's just an earthly mindset. Sometimes it's a sensual attitude. Again, my flesh is just directing me, my humanity. And worst of all, sometimes, he says, we need to use discernment because maybe the way we're reasoning about something or trying to come to a decision is actually the devil manipulating the thoughts and ideas and using his deceptive efforts, causing us to reason wrongly and and misguiding our way of thinking to make us make a poor decision or to behave in a wrong way using wisdom that is not from God. And he says the result of that, verse 16, the worst part of worldly, fleshly, demonic type reasoning, the result, he says, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So when there's unhealthy attitudes in our hearts, when there's a work going on within us that's influencing our decision-making, that's, again, sensual, or it's just an earthly, worldly pattern that we're embracing somehow, or the devil himself is generating ideas in our minds, misguiding us, he says, it produces really unhealthy fruit. 
Where these things exist, he says, an unhealthy atmosphere and bad circumstances come about. And he tells us at least two things here in verse 16. What does that create? What does it produce when I use earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom to make my decisions or process what's right and how I behave? He says one of the things it always causes is confusion. It just brings an atmosphere and conditions that are chaotic. Things get all mixed up. Everything gets all disoriented. We're unable to figure things out. You know, just the waters get all muddied. And things get all polluted and nothing's clear. There's no clarity. There's no resolution. And ungodly reasoning produces just confusion in the sense of disharmony in relationships. It causes disorder. It disrupts and throws everything off balance. It makes things get all unstable because that reasoning path causes a disturbance and it makes things get all unsettled and there's no clarity there's no you know things are just out of order they just get out of order and worldly wisdom and ways of handling things always create a atmosphere where there's total confusion total confusion and the bible says god is not the author of confusion god doesn't author that So when you have an atmosphere, you have conditions, you have a situation where things are getting all mixed up and it's just confusing and you just can't tell right from left and it's just all mixed up and out of order and there's all this kind of just confusion. That's not from God because God doesn't cause confusion. God is a God of order, of truth, of light, of clarity, of resolution. So when confusion exists, it's because wrong wisdom is being utilized. And he says, when these things exist, confusion will be present. And then he just tosses in generically to catch everything. Also, he says, when these things exist, there will be every evil thing there. That's just a simple way of James saying every evil thing imaginable just starts to happen. All types of evil and ungodly and sinful behavior People begin to live contrary to the word of God and contrary to God's will. So let me say in connection to what is not God's way of wisdom and processing things, whenever we find a scenario, a situation, we're dealing with a matter in our personal life, our family, our job place, in the church, in relationships, whatever, and we find that there's the existence and the presence of it being marked by confusion and All types of evil things are happening. Every evil thing is just taking place now. People living outside the will of God, violating the scripture, doing things contrary to God's will. He's saying perhaps the reason why is there's a wrong way of reasoning and processing and people are operating in ways that are not God's wisdom. It's a worldly pattern of thinking that's driving it. It's, a, it, it. it's an atmosphere that has been led by just unhealthy, worldly, sensual, demonic wisdom. And it creates that kind of atmosphere. And he says, there, there's the cause of it. That's the root of it that's created that. Well, James then helps us in verse 17 by saying, but here is wisdom that is from above. How, how do we know if it's God's wisdom? Is this my wisdom or your wisdom, God? Is this the devil deceiving me, God? Is this the devil's ideas in my mind? How do I know if these thoughts and this idea I have about something is really from God? I think this is maybe what God wants me to do, but what if the devil's trying to trick me? 
Or what if I just got ideas from what I see, the way people do things in the world? How do I know? James says, here you go, I'm going to help you. Verse 17, the wisdom that is from above, from God, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So here's God's wisdom, the kind of wisdom we want to live by, right? And take note of the qualities here because you can filter your thoughts through the qualities that God gives to us. First of all, he says God's wisdom is first pure. And that word pure there indicates undefiled or free from contamination. And what it's referencing is free from contamination in our motive. That is, we might say there's not an impure motive at work within us when we're listening and following God's wisdom. When God's wisdom is at work in our life, there won't be a contamination of our motives with ulterior agendas and so forth. And he says, no, first of all, above all else, God's wisdom, because it comes from a holy God, a pure God, a God of light. He says, God's wisdom, there'll be a purity about it. There will be just a genuineness, a sincerity, and a, a heart that is pure in its motives. Interesting. And that will be the chief importance. He says it's first of all, that is first above all things, pure. It's just pure in its heart. Interesting. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God. I think in a sense, Jesus is reminding us one of the ways to see God most clearly in who he really is and what he really wants and what he's really doing is to have a pure heart. When my heart's pure, I see what God's doing most clearly. I see what God wants most clearly when my heart is not contaminated with unhealthy motivations. So how can you tell if God's wisdom is at work? There'll be a purity of the heart attitude. That's the foundation stone for experiencing God's wisdom. Secondly, he says God's wisdom won't only be pure, but it also, he says, then will be peaceable. And I think perhaps two things could be inferred there. First of all, when God's wisdom is at work, there will be a peaceableness in your spirit in the sense that you'll have the, what we call the peace of God. Colossians 3 tells us, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. When you look at that language there in the, the original, let it rule in your heart. It's where we get our English word today, umpire. And you know what an umpire does, right? They, they evaluate what happens in a baseball game and then they make a call. By evaluating something, they say, that's safe. Or they say, out of here. And so God's wisdom allows us to let the Holy Spirit rule in our heart. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. God has put his spirit within you. And one of the ways you can tell us something's God's will, if God is leading, if it's God's wisdom guiding you, is the peace of God should be ruling, umpiring in your heart. And the Holy Spirit, as things come into your life and through your heart and through your attitudes and through your minds, sometimes the Holy Spirit, who's the internal umpire, will say, uh-uh, out of here. Curveball, not good. Knuckleball, this isn't good. Somebody's trying to slip you a fastball. Don't swing at that. No, don't swing at that. And sometimes you may not even know what it is. Sometimes I may, I don't know what it is. I can't even process it, but just something, I just, I, I just, I'm not, I'm unrest about this. Well, that's the Holy Spirit, the moral compass within you working, telling you, listen, 
There's a hesitation for a reason. Trust the Spirit of God. Let the Holy Spirit and His peace rule in your heart. And if that presence of peace is not there, I don't care how good it looks on paper. Can I encourage you? Never transgress your peace. As a Christian, you are to be living in a sense of peace because the peace of God is within you. And when that peace is disturbed, that's an indication God's disturbed. And he doesn't want something to happen that may not ultimately be his will or good for us. So we're to let that peace rule in us. So God's wisdom, how can you tell? There'll be a peace attached to it. There'll be a peaceableness about it, a sense of rest over maybe what it is or what's going on or what you're going to do. The term is also translated in some translations, peace loving, which could be an indication as well of not being someone who's quick to be confrontational. Again, are you being led to start problems or solve problems? That's sometimes how you can tell if, if God's wisdom is what's at work. Because God's wisdom won't start problems. God's wisdom wants to solve problems. It's a, it's a peaceable wisdom, looking for peaceful resolutions and restorations and relationships. Thirdly, he says the wisdom of God will, will have a gentleness attached to it. It'll lead us to behave in a way that's mild, tender, gentle in the way that we interact. The, the term means to use moderation or restraint when we interact with others. So the wisdom of God will cause us to kind of be considerate and to use restraint to think about what's most considerate of other people and what will happen and how we behave or make a decision. Fourthly, he says another mark, how you can tell it's God's wisdom, is he says God's wisdom will cause us to be, look at it there, he says, willing to yield. Willing to yield. That refers to somebody who's just got a compliant attitude. Maybe it makes us willing to yield to authority that's proper authority in our life. I think one of the best ways you could almost summarize here is the idea of willing to yield to another person. To be flexible and to yield to someone else's instruction or desire or preference. We might say today, just being a cooperative person. Just cooperative. Wouldn't it, God? Wouldn't it be nice if people in this world were just more cooperative? Could you do that? Well, well, I mean, I think we ought to. No, could you just do it? Could you just be cooperative? We see this in our children. Could, could you just go put your? Well, no. Could you just be cooperative? But see, some people never grow up. They remain like little children. I don't want to put my toys away. I don't want to play that game. I want to be in charge. I don't want to do that. And, and they're never willing to yield. It's always got to be about them. It's always got to be high maintenance. Everything's got to have a discussion. right? Everything's got to be in it. They can't just be willing to yield. It's not that hard. And he says, God's wisdom, when it's at work in our lives, it'll make us cooperative. The Greek is a sweet reasonableness. You know, don't you love people that are just, man, who's a really reasonable person? That's very reasonable, the way that they're handling that. And I think in a practical sense, willing to yield, even too, that it gives us kind of that temperament, cooperative, flexible in the sense that sometimes situations arise and being willing to yield is God's wisdom in the sense that we're maybe willing to not cling to there's only one way to do something, Right? God's wisdom says, be willing to yield once in a while. Be flexible. Maybe do the same thing. Imagine this, in a different way. Wow. 
You mean you can do something in a different way? No, this is the way we do it. This is the anointed way. This is the spiritual way. This is the way we've always... This is the way we always did it. Okay. Maybe God might want to work a little different. Doesn't mean it's not God. And willing to yield means that we don't put God in a box. We allow God to work and give God the freedom. And maybe we can do the same. Jesus healed people multiple different ways when he healed people. He still healed them. And willing to yield gives us that cooperative, flexible attitude where we're just willing to say, hey, I'm not going to cling to a formula or have to hold tightly to something and be rigid. I can be willing to yield. Sometimes that's God's wisdom. Being wise. Say, okay, I thought it was going to be this way or I think it should be this way, but God's wisdom says, no, be, be willing to yield. Be open. Maybe it's something different. Maybe there's a different way or a different approach. That's often God's wisdom. He says God's wisdom as well is full of mercy. That is, it causes us to be patient with people and compassionate, to bear with people and their mistakes and failures, realizing we make mistakes and need mercy at times too. God's wisdom, he says, will also be marked by being without partiality. We talked about that in prior chapters. That is, we won't be showing special favoritism to anybody we won't be treating somebody as more important than they are or treating somebody else as less important because maybe they don't have some status. We, we just God's wisdom will cause us to be very equal in our treatment to people. We won't be overly impressed by any person and we also won't overlook somebody and treat them as inferior. There's just an equality in our attitude towards people. And he says, finally, God's wisdom also, when it's at work, will be without hypocrisy. The idea is God's wisdom causes us to be genuine. To just be, we might say, be real. We're not putting on an act. There's not a hypocriticalness to us. We're not, you know, we won't be behaving in a hypocritical way with double standards. God's wisdom will say, no, just, I'm just genuine. This is just, this is my genuine thought or my genuine heart. There's not a hypocrisy that's going on. So I, I love this section of James chapter 3. It has helped me as a Christian, as a husband, as a father, as, as a servant of the Lord. It has helped me tremendously in my life because I'm a knucklehead. And I don't always know how to make decisions. I got married when I was 20. I was still shocked I graduated at 20. How do you do this? How do you do marriage? How do you do parents? Lord, how, what's your wisdom? What's my ideas? How do I know? So many times this passage, as we process things, we can use this, ladies and gentlemen, as a filter. And so you come to this passage and say, okay, Lord, here's what I'm feeling in this situation. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what's going on in my heart, my attitude. And, and, and you kind of sift your, your reasoning process through this. And you can begin to decipher, Lord, is this your wisdom that's directing me to think this way or want to do this or not want to do that? How can I tell? And so often we can come to this passage and find out if God's the one directing our thoughts or maybe he's not. James then says, verse 18, now the fruit of righteousness is sown by peace, sown in peace, excuse me, by those who make Peace. So God's wisdom when it's working in a person's life is going to bring, he says there, verse 18, a fruit of righteousness. The idea, we'll live right. We'll just live right in a right way. We'll handle things in a right way. There'll be a right approach before God and among people in the way we go about things. And I think he's reminding us one of the clearest indications that we're living in a right way is we'll appreciate and value what God does. And you know what God values? People. 
and relationships, and more than that, being in right relationship with people. So when God's wisdom is at work, one of the greatest marks of God's wisdom being at work in our lives, he says, verse 18, look at it, is being someone who makes peace by sowing seeds of peace into situations. Planting seeds by what we say, by what we do, by what maybe we don't do or don't say, and just behaving in a way where we're seeking to be a peacemaker. Maybe sometimes that's even just, I know this is just letting it go. Oh, come on. Letting it go? No, I'm... Letting it go? God reconciled the whole world to himself. He let Jesus suffer on the cross. Jesus, well, I'm the one that's right here. No, what do you say? Yeah, I'm the one that's right, but I'll just suffer and take all the pain and all the abuse and I'll bleed out my life in the ground and I'll die to myself just so, so we can be back in right relationship. And he just kind of let it go in some senses. Now, that may not be God's wisdom, so you can check for yourself. But the idea here is, is just being willing to be a peacemaker, a problem solver, someone who is just has a love for wanting to do what is best in the interest of other people, willing to sacrifice yourself. As I said, maybe like Jesus to sow peeds of seeds of, se- <laughs> of peace into that situation. To let there come some form of a resolution. The person that is full of God's wisdom is going to be living right. There'll be a fruit of righteousness and they will value peace because God values it and they value what God values. And let me just say this morning, can I encourage you? Ask God for his wisdom. The Bible says the Lord gives wisdom. The Lord gives it. James tells us to ask for it in chapter one. This divine wisdom, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me your wisdom. And let me just say, for your own contemplation, verse 17 and 18 are important because they're a picture of God's wisdom personified in, guess who? Jesus. Because may I say, when you look at verse 17 and 18, they are a perfect description of the nature and character and the ways of Jesus. Think about it, verse 17. Jesus was, first of all, pure. Jesus was peaceable. Jesus was gentle. Jesus was willing to yield. And full of mercy and good fruits. And Jesus didn't show partiality or hypocrisy. His life was marked by right living. And Jesus brought peace into this world. So James says, who's wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Shall we pray together?